Well, if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of His signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Let's pray once again. O Lord, we pray You'd manifest Your glory and cause Your disciples, each one of us, to believe in You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have seen that the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus was a life and ministry of miracles. And I trust that I don't have to prove that point anymore. But in this message, I'd like for us to consider the very first of Jesus' miracles. This miracle is what you might call the opening statement of His public ministry. I, I want to begin by just pointing out several words, uh, several Greek words that are translated uh, miracles in the New Testament. So, or, or, they're, or they're translated in different ways, but they have to do with the miracles, let's put it that way. They're described, miracles are described by these words. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> there's a, a word, sometimes the miracles are described by a word uh, translated wonders, the Greek word translated wonders. Except, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. At other times, they're referred to by a Greek word meaning acts of power. And in English, uh, this is translated simply as miracles or sometimes mighty works. So, uh, he did not do many mighty works there. And then, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Himself, when He's referring to His miracles, this is pretty amazing, He just calls them His works. Yeah. I did one work and you all marvel. That's the healing of the impotent man. But the word used there in verse 11 is a still different word and it's rightly translated sign. 
this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. <clears throat> so the question is, what is a sign? And um, I could just ask you, I mean, what is a sign? Well, a sign, you think of these signs by the roadside. They, they're meant to point us to something else. Even a sign above a hotel telling the name of the hotel, it's not pointing to itself. It's telling you, look over there, there's that hotel. So the signs are meant to teach us something, to tell us something, to signify something. You pronounce that word signify a little different. It's signify. That's the very word sign right there. Signifies. It signifies something. So, Signs are meant to point away from themselves towards something else or someone else. In this case, the person and character of the Lord Jesus. And the miracles of the Lord Jesus were not, they were not just displays of raw power. They were not um, tricks of a divine magician meant to astound us. That's not what they were. Uh, they were um, not certainly not entertainment, which is what some things are today, so-called Christian circles. And this is what the the amazing part: they weren't even acts of kindness. They were that, but that they were a lot more than that. Yeah. When Jesus healed someone who was sick, there was more there. That was. There were some signs there, not just helping people out. They were signs. In this sense, and this is something I I hope you can lay hold of, the miracles of the Lord Jesus were like acted parables. You want to think about, if you think about sign, what did it mean this was a sign? Well, it was an acted parable. Let me give you some examples. Peter's out here. They're out in the boat. The Lord says, cast your net on the other side. And they bring in this huge catch. And what did He say? Here's the lesson. Don't fear, Peter. Follow Me. From now on, you'll be catching men. And on the day of Pentecost, He threw out the net. And they had so many people, (laughs) they couldn't draw them in. You see, that's what we're talking about, an acted parable. And so right before he heals a blind man, he says, I am the light of the world. See, I came here as the light. The people wouldn't be in darkness anymore. And he heals this blind man. Um, In John 6, after he's fed 5,000 people, what's he say? I am the bread of life. So these, there's, he's teaching things. He's doing more. We'll get to this, Lord willing, but why do you think they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers? There's purpose in all that. And that's the way it is with this miracle here. That, so with, with that in mind, what a sign is, notice the second word, in verse 11, and that is beginning. This beginning of His signs. This is the very first one. In other words, 
Jesus performed this miracle right at the start, right at the beginning, the opening of his public ministry. And the very first miracle he chose to perform was a shocking. He turned water into wine at a wedding. Now wouldn't you think he could have done something more appropriate than that? I mean, he could have healed he could have healed some sickness to show that he came to bring wholeness to humanity. He could have delivered somebody from demons to show that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And instead, his opening statement is he turns water to wine at a wedding. It's an amazing thing. It seems kind of frivolous or unnecessary. And this is where the unbelieving Bible scholars, so-called the liberals, they miss the whole point entirely. They call this a luxury miracle. You know, I can see why he'd heal a blind man or why he'd help somebody to walk or whatever, but this is a luxury miracle. Well, they don't know what a sign is. That's the problem. They don't understand any of the miracles. You see, you can you can see the miracle without seeing the sign. <laughs> they were signs. The Lord Jesus did not turn water into wine just so the people at a wedding could have a good time. He turned water into wine in order to make a statement and teach us something. What was the Lord, the question, and what was the Lord saying to us by making this His very first miracle? Here He is at the very outset of His public ministry. What did He want to teach us, and why did He perform this sign? And I trust we'll see the answer to this question as we go down through here, but I want us to just go through the verse. Verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. There's good evidence that um, from verse 5 and verse 2 where uh, she's giving orders to the servants and uh, where Jesus is invited to and so on that she was somehow friends of the family or had some uh, kind of authority or official part in this wedding. But verse 2 ought to shock us. Jesus also was invited and His disciples to the wedding. So we're used to this, but think of it. The Lord Jesus Christ Say here, you get a wedding invitation. <clears throat> and the amazing thing, and, and and his disciples. So here's this man. He's got these other men that go around with him all the time. <laughs> and they believe that he's the Messiah. They said that back in chapter 1. You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. We've found the Messiah. So there's his followers. And all of them are invited to the weddings. <laughs> And the amazing thing is, he went. Jesus went to this wedding. That right there tells us a lot. He did not have this pharisaical type of righteousness, so-called. He didn't. He was not. He did not come to negate life. He did. He did not come to curse life. He came to bless life. And he gives it by attending that wedding. Just think of it. Every wedding that we attend, we ought to have this sense. Jesus, He went to a wedding. <laughs> he gave His blessing. He's giving His blessing to marriage and to the joy of it in His presence. 
at this wedding. <clears throat> All right, so verse 3 and 4. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, the first thing we've got to deal with is this term woman because it sounds disrespectful in English. And we don't have anything, according to the, the Bible students that I've read, we don't have any word in English that really captures it. You can't say lady. That doesn't sound right. You know, that's what a cab driver says. Get in the cab, lady. And ma'am maybe is a little bit closer, but that doesn't sound right. They're just in the... But it is significant. It's not, it doesn't carry the disrespect in English, and we need to realize that. But it is significant. He didn't say mother. He didn't say mother. He said woman. And <clears throat> it's also significant, and I'm so thankful verse 4 is here. It tells us very clearly that Jesus did not do this miracle because Mary wanted him to. And he didn't do the miracle because of the reasons that she had for doing the miracle. I think her desires were kind and good, but he's on a different round. He's in a different plane. It's like we're there with Peter. And he had to rebuke Peter actually, but um, he said, "You're setting your desires, your mind on not on the things of God, but on the things of man." And Jesus is in this other realm. He's thinking about his hour and his mission. That's what's on his mind. And so he makes it known clearly that they're on a different page. <clears throat> Nevertheless, he goes ahead and does a miracle. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 5, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, she may have been wrong in her understanding, but she was right on here. She, did, she didn't... She knew, she knew enough from his perfect life of 30 years that he'd do the right thing and he'd know the right thing. But she spoke more than she ever realized. It's like Caiaphas when he prophesied about it's profitable for one man to die and not rather than the whole nation. Well, she, she's saying something here beyond what she... Whatever, this is a general principle, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever, first of all, whatever he says to you. <clears throat> He's saying something far more profound than she realized. Deuteronomy 12:32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Don't try to get more holy than God, but don't take away from it. And in Acts 3, <clears throat> Peter's preaching. He says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So whatever he says to you, notice how personal this is, whatever he says to you, well, Lord, what about that man? What shall, what shall that man do? So what is that to you? You do what I'm telling you to do. So whatever he said, whatever he says to you, what? Do it. Not pray about it. 
Don't think about it, rationalize it or whatever, just do it. You know, that parable Jesus gave of the man, the two men, they both made professions. They built their house. One man built a house on the sand and one on a rock. What was the difference between them? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them does them. Mm -hmm. And so the difference between being deceived and having the truth is doing what Jesus said. And you start out trying to do what Jesus said and eventually you're going to end up on the rock, the foundation. The solid rock. I found out when I put it in my GPS, there was about three or four of them. I'm trying to figure out which way to go. (laughs) But it's good, the solid rock. But the, the difference between being deceived and being on the rock and building on the rock is Jesus said He hears these words of mine and He acts on them. He does them. That's that's a profound thing. Yeah. Well, verses 6 and 7 then, they did. It says, Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he's, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So they did what Mary said. They obeyed the Lord. Even though His instructions didn't make any sense. You see, they didn't need water. And they particularly didn't need 180 gallons of water. (laughs) Figure that out. I mean, you know what a five-gallon bucket full of water, that's heavy. And we're talking about one after another after another. 30. You got 30, more than 30, five gallon buckets of water. He said, they have no wine. Whatever he says to you, do it. Okay, fill those 180 gallon water pots with water. <laughs> Does the things God. Does his ways ever not make sense to you? (laughs) They obeyed Jesus anyway, even though what he commanded seemed senseless and unnecessary. We we sing that song, don't we? Trust and obey. So you see again, God is telling us something here. How often do God's ways not make sense to us? You ask for wine, He tells you to draw water. Oh God, use me for Your glory. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more useful in other people's lives. Five years later, your mother with with a baby crying and and the pot's boiling over. Well, Lord, I didn't want water. (laughs) I didn't want water. Moses, oh God, use me to deliver the children of Israel. I know that I know you've called me to that. Use me to deliver them. Forty years later, yeah. out there wandering around, thinking, what, what happened? <laughs> I mean, he was doing a lot of thinking out there yeah. among those bushes. <laughs> yeah. It's something. 
Oh God, give me more patience. Boy, that one there can, can lead to some things. He puts you in, in a fiery trial that seems like it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And everything moves like molasses. Lord, I didn't want water. I wanted wine. No, but water is the first step towards getting the wine. And many of the things that we're tempted to grumble about are direct answers to our prayers for wine. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to trust God and obey. Now they filled them, and they filled them, it says they filled them up to the brim. And verse 8 then, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. Now there's another test of obedience and faith, isn't it? Lord, we just put that water in there. Now you're going to make a fool out of us to draw that water out and take it to the head waiter. You've experienced that, haven't you, though? You draw some water out in obedience to the Lord and give it to somebody and you find out it's turned into wine. You send some Scripture text to somebody, feel prompted of the Lord, send the Scripture text, they write back and say, you do not know. You don't know how much that meant. It was yeah. just at the time Amen. that that thing turned to, turned to wide Amen. after you clicked the button. Amen. It's a thing of obeying the Lord. You're prompted, and He turns water to wine. I've seen that happen with my wife so many times. She sends a book to somebody, and they and they write back and they say, "Oh, you don't realize." It's a it's it's a miracle, isn't it? You get up here and you share water, the water of the Word. And by the grace of God, no matter how flat and dead you feel, <laughs> He does something miraculous. Amen. Well, they drew some out. They took it to the head waiter. <clears throat> and the first thing we're told is the head waiter didn't know where the water came from. He got the blessing, but he didn't know where it came from. And beloved, when we receive spiritual wine from somebody else, we've got no idea what had to take place. We, don't have, we have no idea the steps of obedience, the test of faith that went behind that, that wine. Oh, it's, it's so often a word in season from a brother or sister, maybe a message on Sunday morning. We have no idea where it came from. The cost involved. How many five-gallon buckets it took. <laughs> the miracle involved behind the scenes. Some of you know Bob Jennings. He was a dear friend of mine, one of the first people I met in, in college. He was still unconverted at the time. We were at a conference and he he spoke, he gave a message. Everybody was, they were so blessed. They, you know, this is the best one we've ever had. This is glorious. He told me afterward, he said, I, I was so weak, I didn't have enough faith to get up until the last song. <laughs> wow. The head waiter tasted, he doesn't know where the water came from, 
But the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew where it came from. One man, one of the one of the greatest men of faith that I had ever known in my life. He told me one time. He said, "Before I get up to preach, it several times I've experienced a feeling come over me powerfully. Come over me. It's not going to do any good. Just throw your Bible down and go out." Yeah. You think what well, is it? The devil doesn't want him to get up and pour out the water that turns into wine. There's a there's a there's a poem or a song, I don't know, but it's many a rapturous minstrel among the sons of light will say of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. And many a rolling anthem that fills the Father's throne sobbed at his first rehearsal in the shroud of a darkened room. That's what's going on behind the scenes. <clears throat> All right, verses 9 through 11. The head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, we've walked through the whole passage. How can we sum it up? What can we say? What was Jesus telling us by this unusual, unexpected miracle? <clears throat> we saw in verse 4 that his motives were totally different than Mary's and that he had something far greater in mind than Mary did. We also saw that his thoughts were already on his mission that he had come to accomplish, his hour. So why did he go ahead and perform this miracle? Well, because he saw here at the beginning of his public ministry the opportunity to make a statement about why he had come into the world. Look at what we've got here. First of all, notice the human predicament. They have no wine. How could you sum up any better the condition of the whole world than by that statement? I mean, you look out on things. No purpose, no hope, no reason to go on. Kids cutting themselves just to have be able to feel anything. No answer. Somebody said that most men live live their lives in a state of quiet desperation. I mean, the guy that's working even working the eight-hour job in the factory or something, he lives in quiet desperation. Why not? He comes home and sits down in front of the TV. He's got nothing to live for. Get up, get up in the morning, go to bed at night. Get up in the morning, go to bed at night. There's no, there's no life there. You're existing. There's a lot of young people. There may be some young people here tonight. You're existing. You're empty. You don't have life. You don't have anything. And eventually, you can look at it on the universal thing of the whole world, but look at it on the individual level. Eventually, the wine runs out. 
you try for a while this and you try for a while that and eventually everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again Jesus said in a different context that's the same idea career, education, marriage every kind of thing you can be interested in hobbies, sports, entertainment sin of every kind it won't satisfy the deep thirst within and you'll be left unfulfilled and empty you look at the lives of the movie stars or the rich people Ecclesiastes talks about that. Some, somebody said, you know, Ecclesiastes is the guy that's he's gone to the restaurant already, and he tells you don't go there. I already, I already tried that place. It's no good. <laughs> I mean, except the thing is, he tried everything. So that's not that's that's vanity, striving after wind. I heard the testimony of a brother from Minnesota. All his life was, everything was going great. He's in his 20s. He's got a beautiful wife. He's, he's out fishing and he catches this record fish. He's all alone and he's out in the boat. He pulls that thing in and he knows it's a record. And he was struck by the emptiness of his life. So he got down on, in, the, in that boat and sobbed. There's no reason to live, you know. I had a teacher in high school. He was an agnostic. And he, he'd write sayings on the board every day against Christianity. It was an unusual thing. God put me there right as soon as I became a Christian. And one day he, he, he'd taken up the hobby of grafting. And so you take this fruit tree or whatever and you put it in a stock that'll that'll grow better and so on and, and he said there was he's telling the whole class this he said there was a particularly hard graft supposed to be the hardest graft in that of any graft there is to be able to do it successfully and he said I did it and he looked down and he he almost started crying he said I never wanted to graft again after that See, the wine ran out. Nothing. That's not big enough. That's not big enough to fill the hole. Whatever you're trying is not big enough to fill the hole that you're trying to fill. Only Jesus can do that. So the human predicament, they have no wine. And the Lord Jesus looks at this. What's the next thing? The helplessness of religion to meet the need. Now this is staggering. This is the key to this whole thing. Why does John point it? There were six stone water pots set there. What were those water pots for? The Jewish custom of purification. That had the holy water in there. And they came in and they washed. They they washed maybe multiple times during the meal. And Jesus picks out those things and it, it seems it's sacrilegious. He says, put the, put the water and fill them up to the brim. So He came to transform the water of dead religion 
into the new life of, of, of Christ, of Christianity. He came to replace an old covenant with the new covenant. And we could talk about that for the whole rest of the message, but get it down to the personal level. You try religion. You try it. You try it. It does not meet the need. You've got to have something other than that. You've got to have something more than dead religion. Most, if not all, of these guests had washed in that very water. From the, and and you know it says it says in uh, I believe it's in Mark where they, they, they you know they won't do anything except they they wash and do these washings. Mark seven. <clears throat> But the presence of religion and tradition can do nothing to meet the need for wine. It leaves you empty. And what did Jesus do? He had them put the water in those very water pots that were specifically set aside for this Jewish custom of purification. And it was that water He turned into wine. So what's he telling us here? He's telling us that he came into the world to usher in a glorious transformation. Amen. <coughs> he came to give to sinners like you and me the abundant wine of new life. That's what the wine represents. Psalm 104, wine that makes glad the heart of man. Joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, life. You see, this was a wedding, not a funeral. What a fitting occasion for Jesus to say what He had to say. He came into the world to change the water of religion into the wine of new life. And he's able to do it, beloved. I grew, I grew up in church, and I there was nobody. As far as I know, there was nobody in the whole church that knew God. The church that I was in, and when the Lord saved me, I mean, life, joy, abundant life. I tell them, uh, maybe I said it in the message, I don't know, I think yesterday, but I, w- I was 16 years old. I was walking along beside the road to work. I had to walk a couple miles to work at a filling station. I was making good money, 50 cents an hour. <laughs> Brand new Christian. The whole world's new. Those beer cans in the ditch, man, <laughs> everything's new. That's what he's talking about here. Purpose and peace and joy and glory. That's why the Lord went ahead and worked this miracle even after what He said to Mary in verse 4. He he made it clear, first of all, He's not doing what she thinks He's doing. And then He used it as an opportunity to say, to illustrate right at the beginning of his ministry that he was not coming into the world to get something. He's coming in the world to give us something. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. We were already condemned. Sent His Son 
that we might have life. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's what this that's what this acting parable is. That's what he's saying. I've come that they might have life. And that they might have it abundantly. A free and abundant gift. Spurgeon told the story of a of a woman that uh, she was a poor woman, didn't have any money, and she couldn't pay her rent. And somebody took compassion on her, and they 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 wanted to give her the money to pay her rent. She came. They came. The guy, whoever it was, came to the door, knocked on the door. She wouldn't open it. Later, come to find out, she said, "I thought it was the landlord coming to collect the rent." <laughs> And that's the way a lot of people are towards the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Yes. He's coming to give the greatest gift you could ever have. Right. And we don't open the door because we're afraid He's going to collect the rent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the general opening statement. What? But He says a lot in this. What's He saying? Well, he says more. He tells us something about the quality of the life. That wine. Oh, this stuff's dull and tasteless. I wouldn't want any more of this wine. No, that's not what it was, was it? When the head waiter tasted that wine, he said, this, this is the best stuff. This is, this is really good stuff. So, the Bible says that, isn't it? Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. Amen. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. You get into God's, isn't this amazing? You get into God's presence right where you're afraid to come. Because you know how sinful you are and you get into His presence and while you're feeling your sinfulness, you're full of joy. Amen. This is the best wine in the head waiter tastes. He said, this is, this is the best stuff we've had yet. So he tells us something about the quality of the life. But he also tells us something about the quantity, doesn't he? he could, why, not just, why not just make one little pitcher full of this? Or why not have one of these stone water pots? Why 180 gallons? What do you think he's... You suppose he's saying something? He's saying this is something bigger, this is more abundant than you can imagine. Amen. 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 <laughs> 180 gallons. They they would have finished that wedding. They had, and and from what I've read, it would be a sizable value, the gift to give to them, just something they could sell the rest. Mm-hmm. So abundant, brimful, overflowing. And abundant. Why so much? Because he wanted to tell us that there are vast riches of grace and resources of life <clears throat> for us in Christ. Yeah. Amen. That's that's God's telling us that's reality. And we have we just we've just we've gotten a little taste. Why shouldn't we ought to look at this and say, "Oh God, you said 180 gallons. I know there's more 
that you have. You're, t- you're telling me that there's more yeah, that's right. than what I've experienced. And I ask you to give me more. That's yeah. what so Jesus there in John 7, He says, If any man thirst, let him come unto Me and drink. As the Scripture said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He, he's referring back to what happened in the desert. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people have in their minds, Moses struck that rock and water came out, a little stream came out. No. It says it was like the ocean depth. You've got a million people and livestock and everything. I think when that thing blew open, it was terrifying. There was so much water, it would run back from it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Jesus said, I'm that, I'm that rock. Yeah. And there's rivers. There's rivers of living water that He's inviting us. Come. Well, what else does He say? One more thing. He says, every man serves a good wine first, and then that which is poor. That's not the way it is with God. (laughs) The devil, the world, the flesh, the devil, man, gives you the best first. If you're living in sin, if if you don't know God, you've already got the best there is. That's it. Yeah. And it's downhill from now on. It gets worse. You know, sin reminds me, I remember when I was a high school kid and a friend of mine and I got on a, a ride. I think it was called the Rocco Plane, maybe. Maybe they still have it, I don't know. But it had cages that spin. It was like a Ferris wheel. Man, we were having a good time. We'd pull that thing back and make it just spin, end over end over end, going around all the way around. And I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but the guy running the ride left us on for a second ride. And the second time, we were doing everything we could to try to stop that thing. <laughs> I mean, it was it was bad, and we were so sick. It took hours. But that's the way sin is. Yeah. Oh boy, this is fun. Until it starts to become your master and and you start to get sick and you can't stop it. Yeah. And you and you start to be you know, this is this is bad. This is bad. God's ways are different. Amen. Path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day comes. Amen. Now, beloved, think about this. Most of your salvation you have not experienced yet. Peter talks about a salvation ready to be revealed, yet waiting there. The salvation. We have we haven't even just the tiniest bit. We've got the tiniest bit of the wine. <laughs> there's so much left, there's, a, there's an ocean left. Amen. The best stuff reserved for what's to come. Amen. So what we, we ought to lift up our heads, shouldn't we? Yeah. Paul says, we look not at the, I'm not looking at the seen things. You start looking at the seen things, you're going to get discouraged. That's right. We look not at the things that are seen, but at things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporal, temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. Our light affliction, getting stoned and whipped and kicked. and <laughs> Our light affliction, he says, 
that is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. So, aren't you glad Jesus turned this water into wine? It's the first miracle. First thing he had to say. Now, I want you to know. I want you to know why I came. It's glorious. Amen.